It's unbearably hot on the island, and so I decided to leave my apartment and walk to Deacon House to get myself an ice cream. Back in colonial times, a rich man left what is now Deacon House to his son of mixed race. This infuriated the white colonists of the day, and many roads and byways were built so that no one would have to pass by Deacon House. Today, all their estates are gone, and Deacon House is a celebrated landmark. People come from all over the island to shop, drink, and eat ice creams. As I approach the front gates, I pass a bunch of crackhead squeegee men who are lounging around on the street corner. As I walk by, I put my hand underneath my shirt to itch a mosquito bite on my back. For some reason, this really upsets one of the crackheads. His patois is pretty much unintelligible, but I am able to make out something to the effect of, who do you think you are, you shirt-lifting, disrespecting white boy? You can't come here to my island and do that to me. Turn around, I'm talking to you. Turn around, you filthy back-scratcher. I quicken my pace, feigning obliviousness, but I can sense him coming after me. There is a security man at the gate, and as I approach, he gets up off his bench and looks me in the eye as if to tell me that, yes, he will deal with the crackhead behind me, and yes, he knows that I'm about to crap myself. I decide to play it cool. I just nod my head as if I'm a serious artist lost in my own imagination. I order a vanilla waffle cone and I stroll to the other side of the courtyard. I get as far away as I can from the front gates, but as soon as I sit down on a bench in the shade, I hear a sharp whistle. I look up. It's the crackhead. He has walked all the way around the yard alongside the iron fence, and now he's standing less than 10 feet away from me, brandishing his squeegee stick and frothing at the mouth. He looks like he's skinny enough to squeeze between the bars of the fence, but I don't want to wait around for him to figure this out. So I spring to my feet and I head for the other side of the yard. But as soon as I'm off, he starts shrieking. It's as if there are furies or harpies at my heels. I stumble and my ice cream ends up all over my pants. Humiliated, I walk into the bar and order a beer. I sit down at the window and press it to my forehead until my breathing returns to normal. But when I look up, there he is. He's now returned to his post outside the front gates, and when he sees that I've noticed him, he starts jumping up and down and waving his squeegee stick in the air, and then he launches into this elaborate pantomime illustrating what he's going to do to me when I come out onto the street. First. He knocks me to the ground and squeegees my head into the concrete. Then he yanks me to my feet and shoves me against a corrugated metal wall and squeegees what's left of my face into the rusty grooves. Then he turns me over, rips off my shirt, and squeegees the mosquito bite on my back until I pass out. This violent pantomime repeats itself over and over again as I drink beer after beer, sinking deeper and deeper into despair. Finally, this large gentleman who's sitting at the table next to me gets up and sticks his head out the window. He shouts something angry and official sounding that sends all the crackheads on the corner scurrying away like rodents. My savior turns out to be a high-ranking official in the Ministry of Security. He sits down at my table and begs me not to be angry with the island. I order us a round of beers and he explains to me why the island's criminal element is so riled up. Ever since 9-11, he says, the United States has cracked down on the island, forcing it to extradite all of its supposed drug kingpins, oftentimes on evidence as flimsy as a signed confession from some two-bit thug in a Florida jail. These arrests have sent the island economy into a nosedive, for the drug trade is the island's economic engine, it fuels new construction, new business, the black market, and so in order to stay afloat, many criminal types have now taken up enterprises much more violent and destructive like extortion, gun running, and murder. 
my friend assures me that he is an honest policeman and that he's doing his best to deal with the situation. But he has superiors, many of whom are not honest, and thus it is a constant struggle to do anything good for the island. Then he tells me that he is days away from blowing the whistle on the worst of his superiors, a man who steals from the prison fund to pay for his gambling trips to Vegas and Monaco. And this man is also a killer. Many of his enemies have been gunned down in the streets like dogs. Aren't you frightened? I ask. Well, he says, for some reason, my daughter who is studying medicine in the States is having these dreams in which I am murdered by gunmen. And she knows nothing of what I am doing, but almost every day now, she phones to tell me about some horrible nightmare in which I am gunned down and killed. And then, as if on cue, his cell phone rings. He takes it off his belt and examines the caller ID screen. It's her, he says, my daughter, Kaya. He puts the phone on speaker mode and places it on the table. Kaya is extremely upset. She tells her father that she's just awoken from a dream in which he was being pursued by a car full of gunmen. She says the men were chasing her father's SUV up and down the hilly streets of the university district and that eventually they caught up with him and riddled his car with bullets until it crashed and exploded. My new friend tries to joke with his daughter. He tells her she is performing too many autopsies, but this only makes her cry. Eventually he gives up trying to calm her down and puts the phone back on his belt. Neither one of us wants another beer. I tell him where I'm staying and he offers to drop me off. As we pull out of the Deacon Hill parking lot, a car zips up alongside us and a man leans out the window brandishing a machine gun. Bullets fly through the air as we zoom ahead and the other car takes up pursuit. Neither one of us says anything, not even when we turn onto one of the hilly streets that borders the university. We remain completely silent until, miraculously, our pursuers fail to make a turn, and it looks like we've lost them. Then he slams on the brakes and orders me out of the car. I try to protest, but he reaches over my shoulder, yanks open the door, and kicks me out into the tall grass alongside the road. I hear him speed away, and then I hear the other car rush by, and then in the distance I hear gunshots, and then a crash, and an explosion, and then screams and sirens, and then finally, nothing. When I awake, it's twilight. I start walking towards the university. Hopefully, I will be able to call for a taxi at the campus center. As I cross the football field, I come across a beautiful woman standing in the middle of the grass with her legs spread apart. And when she sees me, she beckons me to approach. Excuse me, she says. Can you please help me make an old man happy? What do I have to do? I ask. Stand right over there, she says, pointing to a spot about ten feet away, and, and stand like me, with your legs apart. I follow her instructions to the letter. She is terrifyingly beautiful. Now what? I shout out. Just wait, she replies. He's coming. A few minutes later, this doddering old man with frizzy hair and a bow tie emerges onto the field. He's pushing a ball along the ground with a cricket bat. He moves painfully slow, but he does manage to knock the ball between the woman's legs. Then she nods in my direction. The man looks over at me. How wonderful, he cries out. And then, with a renewed sense of vigor, he scoots the ball in my direction. Eventually, he gets the ball between my legs, but this is too much of a feat and he collapses to the ground. 
professor, the girl screams out. We both rush to his side. My children, he mutters deliriously. Always remember, no island is an island. The girl strokes his forehead and with a whisper tells me that the professor is living in a fantasy world. She says that in the professor's world, all of the islands have unified to form a federation. A federation that holds its own on the world stage. In fact, it's just defeated the United States Army at the Battle of Grenada. But what does this federation have to do with this game of human croquet, I ask? She says, you mustn't say such things. We were not playing croquet. We were playing cricket. It turns out that the professor has invented his own unique style of playing cricket, a style he hopes the Federation will soon officially adopt as its own. The woman assures me that my participation tonight has happily convinced the professor that his style is now even catching on with the tourists. And with that, she lifts the professor up off the ground and slings him over her shoulder. Come, she says, we must get him to bed. I pick up the cricket bat and the ball and fall in behind her. The professor lives in a small house just on the outskirts of campus. As she puts him to bed, I check out his medicine cabinet, but there are only pills for heart disease and gout. Nothing worth stealing. After we lock up the house, Dora, the woman's name is Dora, offers to buy me dinner to show her appreciation for helping her and the professor. She has a car, and we drive to the beach. Tiki torches light a path to a small grove near the water. She touches my arm as we sit down at the bar. In the light of the tiki torches, her beauty is almost transcendent. She tells me that back in the day, the professor was a famous island Marxist, but his theories only led to mental illness. Nothing concrete, nothing real ever came out of his work, for in the end, it was only a study of what the world could be rather than a study of what the world actually was. The professor thinks Dora is one of his theory students, but in truth, she's actually a graduate student in slum studies. She keeps her major a secret. Slum studies is an emerging field in the anthropological discipline in which the world's ghettos and slums are researched and documented. Her specialty is the refugee camps of Nigeria. In fact, she's just returned from a three-month field trip. And what did you learn on this trip, I asked. She then tells me about the flying toilets of Nigeria. Since there are no bathroom facilities in the Nigerian refugee camps, it has become custom for the people of the camps to squat and poop into plastic bags. The people then tie these bags up, swing them over their heads, and send them flying into the air. According to Dora, small children and old people are often knocked unconscious by these flying toilets. There have even been a few fatalities. At this point, the bartender who's been listening in on our conversation leans in and interrupts. He tells Dora that there's no need for her to leave the island to pursue her slum studies. He says that she could take a field trip to the prison and find conditions just as appalling. He tells us that he himself has spent three years locked up, and while there were no flying toilets, he could not imagine a worse place to be. He tells us that when a man enters the prison on the island, he is given a cut-off plastic Coke bottle to urinate in. The men call these bottles their gals, and this gal is the heart of many of the prison's rituals and customs. For example, if you drop your gal on the ground and pick it up, this means that you have now become a homosexual and a target of the entire prison population. And if you are not immediately moved to a special section of the prison, you will most likely be killed. 
Of course, one can always leave one's dropped gal on the ground, but in most cases, spillage occurs. And if you have been spilled upon and you don't try to kill the person who dropped his gal, then you have now become a homosexual. So a dropped gal always means violence, especially in the cells where the men are packed into tiny hammocks, sometimes eight men to a cell. It is a common occurrence for a man in one of these upper hammocks to drop his gal. And when this happens, he is immediately pulled to the ground and beaten to death. But in the morning, no one is allowed to clean up either the spilt urine or the blood and guts of the beaten man, for whoever does so becomes a homosexual. And the cycle continues. Dora reaches over and runs her finger across the scar on our bartender's giant right bicep. And then she and he launch into a deep discussion about gals and flying toilets and island philosophy. The flickering tiki torches barely mask the sparks that are flying between them. So I tell them my story about the problems with the toilet in my bathroom. You see, my landlord recently redid the entire bathroom in my apartment. He put in a new floor, and he redid the walls, all with this imported Italian tile. He also installed a new sink and a new toilet. Supposedly, everything is top of the line, but it's barely been two months, and the new toilet is already acting up. Every night it runs. Every night I am forced to get out of bed and jiggle the handle or take off the top and rattle the pump. Neither one of them takes interest in my story, and eventually they start talking over me. I become invisible. I get up and walk down to the beach. I kick off my shoes and wade into the water. I think of the professor and his idea that no island is an island. If this is true, I should be able to walk to the next island without drowning. Then I hear something. Someone is running along the shore, running towards me. There is only a sliver of the moon in the sky, but I am able to make out the thin shape of a man brandishing a squeegee stick. is an island. I don't know. I think sometimes one of the greatest things or one of the most noble things that we can do is take the time out to be selfish. Take the time to be selfish and understand ourselves. Find out who we are and then use that to do whatever it is that we want to do in the world. I spend a lot of time trying to understand me and trying to understand my needs. Trying to understand what has saved me from becoming those people that I'm trying to save or those people that I'm trying to work with. And when I understand that, then I understand that there's a thin line between, you know, them and me. There's a thin line between people who are in prison and me. There's a thin line between everybody. You see, I just want to live in a world where I try to do that which is right. 
I work on myself to become the best person that I can. And if I can accomplish doing that, and then people can see something in me that they admire, that they might, they might want to emulate or whatever the case is, then that's cool, man. Maybe it's selfish. Maybe it just makes me sleep better at night, you know, knowing that, you know, well, there's so much wrong with the world, but I'm trying to do, I'm trying to do something. Maybe that's what it is. Here we are in a situation where we feel like the world is crumbling around us. Everything has gone wrong. Nobody can really save you. You gotta save yourself. And we all have the ability to save ourselves. So what it is that we need to do is we just need to start looking, start searching. And the best place to start is to start searching within. Because from the outside, when you look outside, you're gonna get people's opinions. You're gonna get people's ideas and ideologies. If we don't have what it is that we're looking for, if we are not what it is that we're looking for, then what are you expecting to get? If you're bringing facade to the table, if you're bringing fake, if you're bringing unreal to the table, what exactly is it that you're hoping to get? What are you looking to find? You gotta be straight. You can't believe it, you can't think it, you gotta know it. And every person that I meet, if that person walks away thinking that I'm a bad person, I should be comfortable with, within myself to say that's their opinion. And not thinking that, well, maybe they have something, maybe I am a bad person, no. I should be comfortable with the work that I do every day on myself. I should be comfortable in saying that that's his opinion, that's her opinion and just leave it at that. Man's greatest task is to give birth to himself. And what that simple means is that the real you is within you and you have to figure out a way how to give birth to it. The world is ready to take you as you are, as you really are. It's the fake you that the world does not want. And it's the fake you that the world rejects. Most of the time when you see people out there that they're having a hard time, it's because they're not real. If you are what you are, if you are who you are, if you stand up, the world will take you, man. The world will accept the real you. So whatever it is, the real you, that's what you need to give to the world. The other part about this whole thing is just like, why aren't we allowing individuals to be individuals? You know, you get married and all of a sudden this, your, your wife no longer calls you Ben, she calls you my husband. You know, your children don't call you Ben, they call you dad. And with each of those relationships, there comes responsibilities. And in each person's mind, the, each person has a different definition for what that relationship has to be. And so when you're not living up to their expectations of their definitions of what that relationship is supposed to be, then all of a sudden, you're not doing something right. You're doing something wrong. And then all of a sudden, all of these discontent and all of these things start and people start to get miserable. But why are we getting miserable about those things? What we need to do is to simply understand that this person is an individual. They have individual ways of thinking and so on and so forth. And as you're going through the courting process of the relationship, not only man-woman relationship, but any relationship, as you're going through the process, if you're continuously aware of what it is that you as an individual want, and we're going back to the self again, you're thinking about what you want, what you like, what makes you happy, what kind of freedoms do you want, and give those same freedoms to the person. Don't cage them like an animal, because then they're gonna react. They're not gonna respond. To respond, it takes time to sit and think, and then you respond. To react is just like you blow up. Action, reaction. You say something bad to me, I'm going to say something bad to you. You try to hurt me, I'm going to try to hurt you. And that's what happens in relationships when people are trying to stop people from being who they are to suit what they think the relationship ought to bring forth. So it all comes back to self, man. All of us, and I really do stress that point, all of us need to be selfish.
Uh, maybe you could start off by uh, telling me about your sound system. Yes, man. Well, basically we have a Ford van fitted for sound, specially designed. We have cabinets cut out of the sides so the speakers can point out. We have six Serwin Vega 20-inch speakers, four Crown 300-watt amps, which brings the total wattage to about 1,000 watts, man. We have one battery-operated turntable in case the power goes out, we can still rock. We have two 1200 Technique turntables, the basic standard for most DJs nowadays. A four-channel stereo mixer, two microphones for Scotty, the selector, and my DJ count matchstick. We have two Denon, we have two Denon CD players to play some of the newest reggae and hip-hop, various music like that. Um, uh, we also have a lexicon effects processor, so we're allowed to uh, use reverb and actually put more hall sounds on our on our music. Okay, uh, and uh, does your sound system have a name? <laughs> yes, man. It's called the Voice of the Revolution. And is that uh, sort of like a, a reference to uh, Prince Buster's uh, uh, sound system, Voice of the People? No, no, man. The voice of the revolution is, is basically just a name, man. You know, in everything I've read about him, he, he's mentioned that uh, his whole reason for starting his sound system was, you know, as, as an act of defiance. His sound system was the voice of the people because he felt the voice of the people wasn't being heard anywhere else. And are you saying that that's not what you're doing? Oh, uh, not really, man. I mean, I'm a big fan of Prince Buster and all of the the originators of dancehall and the traveling sound system. Nowadays, with the advent of radio and CDs and MP3s, people can just about hear anything they want to hear. Basically, what we're doing is we're bringing a certain sound that people may not have found before or may not have ever heard of. Um, uh, I, don't, I, I don't really put myself up there with Prince Buster or any of the originators of the dancehall traveling sound system. Describe to me uh, a typical night out uh, with your sound system. Okay, basically, basically, I travel with three people myself. As I mentioned, Selector Scotty, he's the selector of the evening, and my DJ, DJ Count Matchstick. See, again, you know, that's like Count Machuko. Well, it's it's a name, man. It's just a name, man. He's not uh, related to Count no, not Machuko? related any, not related in any way, man. He's from Brooklyn. Uh, you know who Count Machuco is, though. Right? Oh, I'm quite aware of that, man. Yeah, he was the, the, the first DJ. The, or first toaster, I guess. I, I get the words confused. Uh, well, anyways, continue on. <laughs> well, basically, the night might start about, you know, say, 7 or 8 o'clock. Uh, we load up the van with the speakers, the amps, the turntables. It takes quite a quite a, a lot of time to do that. And um, I usually call my selector, Scotty, to help me with that because my DJ is usually always late. Uh, smoking ganja at his girlfriend's house or in the studio so um, usually we load up the van and we get to the hall around you know 8 9 o'clock uh, we set up we uh, you know we basically do a sound check we get everything set the way we want usually these these parties and stuff like that don't last till you know don't start till about 10 or 11 o'clock so if we're set up by 9 9 30 we're cool so basically after we set up and we do the sound check, people start to fill in and um, we, we, we start with some stuff that people may have heard already uh, to, get them, to get them moving and to get their, uh, their internal metronome rolling, um, get their heart rate up. As the night goes on, usually an hour after that point, that's when we really start bringing in the heavier rhythms and I, I let my DJ Count Matchstick select more of the, the, um, the rhythms that go on throughout the night. But wait a minute, you're saying that uh, you're, you're playing music that people have already already heard, they're already accustomed to. I thought that mm -hmm. the, the sound system tradition was, was uh, more to play stuff that people weren't familiar with, people weren't hearing on the radio. <laughs> Trust me, man. The thing about a, a party in a dance hall is that you gotta get people you gotta get people going. You can't just play a record and expect that they're gonna dance to it. You you kinda wanna get people feeling good about where they're at the dance hall and you want to, to get them something familiar, maybe a piece of home if they listen to you know you know, some local hip hop or something like that. 
So basically what we try to do is give them something a little familiar to get them comfortable with the atmosphere. And then as the night goes on, we lay on the heavier rhythms and the heavier beats. So where is this music coming from? Well, usually I rely on my DJ Count Matchstick to get most of the to get most of the music. Um, he travels across the world. He's world renowned and he he's the best DJ I know. He usually gets his records from Tower Records, Virgin Records, the internet, you know. He can he, he can do anything. He's very versatile, man. So you're saying that uh, you know, you're you're just basically buying the music that uh pretty much commercially available to anybody in the world so anybody could get this music. I mean what's so special about about that? Well a lot of the times I'll I'll be over at the Selector Scotty's house and he has a nice MP3 setup and we'll get some special mixes off the internet or off of um, different websites and stuff like that something like mp3.com 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 yeah man uh, I mean I guess I, I'm, I'm wrong then because you know I just I've read this book and, uh, you know, it seems that the whole point of these sound systems is to be, you know, basically going up against official culture, and that's not what you're about. What we do is we bring the voice of the revolution, which is our whole sound set, to any venue or any area, and we're able to produce a vibe, man that can't be duplicated in any studio or can't be duplicated on any street corner. And what is, you know, the, the point of this vibe? Well, the vibe is all good. The vibe is drinking. We drink a lot of beers, a lot of Red Stripe, and a lot of Heineken. Um, there's a lot of ganja smoking, a, a lot of illegal stuff on, on many levels, but if we can walk away from a good buzz, a good night of music, and a couple of luscious females, then the night is strong. So the, the vibe is basically, you know, you and, and your DJ and your selector... Uh, you know, I'm getting f***ed up and, and, and late. Yeah, man. I work at a hotel normally during the week, so I don't see much of that atmosphere around. So when it does come around, we take advantage of it. Why do you call it the voice of the revolution, then? I call it the voice of the revolution because I like the name, man. Basically, that's the only reason I can give you. Um, we, have no, we have no political message our message would be to drink, have fun, listen to music, dance, and definitely inhale, and then get laid. Okay. Um, I don't know. I, I, see, I, I read this book, and uh, I really identified with it because, in a way, it's sort of like the vibe that I, I try to do. And, and, you know, in, in a way, you know, I mean, you know, you have your DJ. He's he's toasting. Is that the right word? Yeah, man, toasting, man. Basically, the DJ yelling out commands to the crowd. I think. Nowadays, um, people refer to it as the call and response, um, an ancient ritual in the music of, um, of our forefathers' dance hall and otherwise. But um, basically, toasting is the DJ getting on the mic, introducing the song, and basically challenging the people to dance to it, to dance to it hard. But he's talking over it. Yeah, man. Yeah, I know this is sound weird, but, you know, in this, this white man... You know, sort of literary way. I, I, I'm doing sort of the same thing. I don't have a truck, and I don't have these big speakers, but you know, I, I definitely have these rhythms that I, I like to talk over. So, you know, when I read this book about these, you know, uh, innovators who who started this dance hall, men like Prince Buster and Duke Reed, mm -hmm. I, I really identified with them and. I thought, you know, like, wow, you know, I'm, I'm sort of doing the same thing. They're, they're talking over music. They're getting the people to, to hear things that, that the official culture isn't letting them hear. And, you know, I came here hoping to sort of hook up, link up with, you know, people that are doing the same thing. So I hear about you. You know, you do your sound systems called the Voice of the Revolution. Yeah, and you're just telling me that it's all about, you know, shaking your ass and smoking pot and having a good time. Yeah, yeah, man, yeah, man, definitely, definitely. But the thing about what we do is we add an element. We, we are definitely similar in what we do, but we add an element. We're actually getting involved with the people and the music. I'm always in the crowd, you know, walking through, making sure that everybody's dancing and making sure that the vibe is right. And if it isn't, then I can, I can change that immediately. And that's something that you can't necessarily get um, broadcasting because you don't necessarily have the immediate feedback that we get. I, I agree that you know in person it is it's very intimate, but I, I also 
would like to think that there's, you know, a, a serious intimacy to what I'm trying to do. But the real difference seems to me to be in that, you know, that you really actually don't have a, a message, a political message to what you're doing. And I, I just find that, you know, mind-blowing. I, 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 I'm just very confused. Well, my people just tend to come and they know exactly what they want when they get there. They know they want to dance, they know they want to smoke, they know they want to drink, and they know they want to get laid, man. And that's the revolution, man. Well, uh, okay then. Um, I, I appreciate your time, and I guess it's, you know, sort of pointless for me to try to find in you the, the revolution that I'm looking for if it's not there. Well, what is the revolution you're looking for, man? got down to the island um i knew nothing about jamaican music i didn't know sean paul's name even though i knew the songs i couldn't name two, more than two bob marley songs probably and probably most comically i thought ska was a type of music that came out of new jersey because every time i had heard the word ska it was in relation to i'm in a ska band in new jersey from people i'd met in college um, so I had no idea that Scott was a Jamaican form of music originally. Um, I was totally clueless. Christina Shu ended up in Kingston, Jamaica on a summer internship. It was the first time she'd really traveled anywhere. She spent her summer working in one of the island's prisons by day and listening to music by night. Luckily for me, my laptop broke the day before I went to Jamaica, so I had to send it away for repairs. And um, this meant that after I got back from work, I had, you know, I didn't, I couldn't listen to any of my own music. I was uh, stuck with the radio. And luckily, there, I don't think there was a single place you could stand in Kingston without being able to hear some form of music because people are always blasting it out of cars or, you know, if it's nighttime, you're probably, you could probably within earshot of two or three different parties. Um, so uh, I, I was just completely saturated and surrounded uh, by this music that was completely foreign to me um but i started just by listening to it over and over again um i started recognizing some of the songs and it really grew on me i think so kevin uh, my boss basically at the time had a friend visiting from out of town and she needed a place to stay so she stayed in my apartment she had been to the island before and um uh, wanted to go out at night so I said okay cool you know this would be a great way for me to explore the nightlife a little um, so she met a guy or had a friend um, who was uh, shall we say a vendor at uh, different types of club nights or uh, parties um, and so to sell his wares he had to go to he went to a party basically every night he went to the biggest party because that's where his business was so he uh, had a car and he drove us to Bembe, which is one of the weekly parties. Um, so in Kingston, there's a major party outdoors every night of the week. Um, Bembe was sort of the party of choice for Thursdays. I was 19 at the time, so Jamaica drinking age is 18, unlike here. So it was one of the first times I was able to go to a bar and order, you know, alcohol. So I was drinking and then partying and I think I made it until about 1.30 or 2, um, but I had been awake since 8 a.m. that morning for a conference, and so I was pretty exhausted. At some point, even though it's a great party, I asked Clinton to let me sleep in his car <laughs> during this great party. Uh, the car is parked outside the party, um, 
So it's about somewhere between 700 and 900 feet away, I would say, from where the speakers were. Pretty far away. Um, but as I was trying to sleep in the back of that car for the next three hours, every time there was a bass beat, the entire, it was like it was like a small earthquake. You know, the whole ground shook, the car shook, my bones shook. Um, it was completely, completely impossible to sleep. So that's sort of my entree into understanding Jamaican music and just how all-encompassing it was, literally and, and figuratively. I think part of the reason that Jamaican music really appealed to me was that a lot of dancehall culture is really about having this insider knowledge about a, a pretty complex, small but very complex world. So, you know, a song debuts and by the next week, everyone knows the dance. How that happens is so beyond me. I mean, I, I kind of understand at this point, but it's crazy to me that they're able to spread that information so fast within their networks, right? Like information does not move that fast even on the internet <laughs> you know especially for something that complex and um since then i've become really fascinated with like youtube dance video culture and people recording themselves uh, dancing and then putting them online and and really communities forming around that kind of thing Starting off as a, a clueless 19-year-old who had never been to a different place before um, and and sort of immersing myself in this culture, um, I think the thing that music taught me the most was how important um, music and parties were to uh, community formation and, and how important they were to community identity, especially in Jamaica, but you know, as I've traveled more since then, everywhere. Ethnomusicologist and DJ Wayne Marshall spent a lot of time in Jamaica. When I met him, he was working on his dissertation. To me, it looked more like nonstop jam session than work, but nonetheless, this is when he first started learning about Jamaica's unique relationship with the world. I would put the snare drum in a particular place and they'd say, no, nah, it's gone to hip hop. You know, or sometimes they would specifically re request that I do it. And they'd say, oh, that's an international sound that I'm going for, you know? Um, uh, and, and so oftentimes the very difference between shifting of a snare drum would signify Jamaicanness as opposed to Americanness. Uh, and, and, and the difference could sound as subtle as, I mean, I mean, we're just talking about shifting a snare drum. So for uh, uh, Americanness, we're talking about a pattern just like... And if we just move that snare up a little bit, we get Jamaicanness. A few years later, Wayne ended up at Harvard lecturing on the music of the Caribbean. This rhythm, it turns out, is found on lots of islands. This rhythm, which was the difference that, that my collaborators were hearing between Jamaican and American music, was, was really quite prevalent across the Caribbean. So I could hear that same... In Jamaica and in Trinidad and in Cuba, Puerto Rico, Dominican Republic, Haiti, you, I mean, you name it everywhere. And, and so when I was giving these lectures, I would actually say, okay, let's just call this the island rhythm. The essence of this rhythm is basically juxtaposing groups of three against groups of two. So you've got, you've got a prevailingly duple meter. You can count it in groups of two. One, two, three, four, one, two, right? Um, but against that, you have a constant uh, uh, but but kind of uneven or additive uh, uh, groupings of threes so that you get a sort of 
And so, uh, I mean, I just feel like that has a sort of fundamental dynamism to it. It's push, pull, push, pull, push, push, pull, push, push, pull. You know what I mean? It is, it's just, it's dance music. But um, depending on where you are, there are lots of different names for it and, and different shapes it takes. Um, still, it's remarkable that that's, that's that basic... <clears throat> Uh, can be heard in dancehall reggae, can be heard in Trinidadian soca, can be heard in Cuban son and, uh, you know, in, in salsa from Puerto Rico and New York, or uh, even in a good number of merengue songs and Haitian compa. Uh, and, you know, you, you could mix those all together. And oftentimes in the class, what I would do is set up a basic uh, uh, sort of uh, MIDI block rhythm that I would have titled Island Rhythm and it would just go, you know and I would just superimpose that, you know, using Ableton Live. I'd superimpose that with all of these tracks. One of one of the, the sequences that I like to do is the clave sequence. Now clave is a is a sort of Cuban manifestation of this where instead of you know, I've been subdividing pretty much every bar. One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two. The typical Cuban clave or that the 3-2 the Cuban clave gives it a little bit more space. So you get that in the first half of the bar, but then the second half of the bar, it sort of catches up and you get on beat again. So you're sort of ahead of the beat and then you're back on the beat. And so it plays out sort of over twice as long, the same dynamism that's playing out at, at the halftime too. You know what I mean? You're sort of on top of it and then you're back on it. That's, that, that's sort of the way that the threes against the twos are working. So, so in a, a sort of 3-2 Cuban clave is a basic, you get that, but then you're back on it, right? Right. In Cuba, in fact, they call uh, the basic uh, they call that the the tresillo because it's it's three times per thing, you know. But that's actually thought of as a simplification uh, of what some people I think would argue is an even more widespread rhythmic pattern, uh, the cinquillo. Right, so it's the same pattern. It's just adding two more per per measure. So you say you used to call it the 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 island rhythm. What 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 changed? Yeah, well, you know, it's one of the funny things about even calling it the island rhythm in the in the first place is that it it was meant to describe this quality shared across all these islands, right? So it wasn't to call it an island thing is is implying this kind of isolationism or something, right? But that's not how it was working. The whole point was, wow, we can thread this through these different islands in order to illustrate essentially the, 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 the same history of um, exchange and migration and, in fact, modern convergence. I mean, to even talk about an, you know some sort of isolated island today is absurd, right? I mean, everybody is in conversation, and Jamaican music has been uh, as, as good an illustration of that as anything over the decades. I mean, in, in the end, what was so exciting to me about about being able to talk about this so-called island rhythm that you could hear across all the islands of the Caribbean, uh, as well as what was what seemed really interesting about this this difference that was heard and felt by Jamaicans, uh, you know, between these different rhythmic patterns, um, had a lot more to do with with connection. Um, so, what do you call the the island rhythm now? <laughs> I, these days, I I, t I I mostly tend to call it boom. Chipum, chick. Agency, it's John. Um, hi, uh, I found your website on the internet and um, I'm basically uh, calling for, for more information. You want to buy an island? Yes. You ever been to an island? Many, many islands. Name one. Uh, Bermuda, uh, Jamaica. You're thinking you were going to buy something like a Jamaica island? No, no, no. I, I'm looking mostly small and cheap. I mean, you know, it could be even like a little print size. I just kind of want something small that and I. Cheap. I can call my own and, you know, I can build a little hut on and then, you know, it'll be all mine. Oh, oh, I, you know, I talk to guys like you every day. You want to be king, right? 
Well, no, I wouldn't call myself king. I just want... You want to be a king. You want to have your own island. It's going to be your nation, right? What's your name again? Benjamin. Benny. Kingdom Benny. That's what you're looking for. Look, there hasn't been a free island. You can make your own kingdom, your own country, since the 70s. So, they're owned by other countries? They're all owned by other countries. Let me tell you a little story. Millionaire guy. He comes from uh, Las Vegas. He thinks, I'm going to have my own kingdom island. So what he does is that he scours the maps and he finds this place just off of Tonga. You know where Tonga is? Mm. Think South Pacific. Okay. Big island chain. But this guy finds pretty much a rock. Well, it's only really half a rock because when the tides come up, it just becomes ocean. So anyway, so he buys this pile of coral and he spends a ton of money. Think, you know, 15, 20 million bucks. And then what he does is he gets a dredger and he starts dredging up the sand and the rock so that this piece of coral will stick above the ocean, even during high tide. He's making his own island. He's making his own South Pacific island. He had his own little flag designed and the whole thing. Except that the uh, king of Tonga finds out about it. Tonga's been around for a long time. And so what this king of Tonga does is that he gets 90 of his prisoners from his island, and he puts them on a boat with a band, and they land on Mr. Millionaire's kingdom island, this piece of rock out in the Pacific. And they landed there, and they ripped up the flag, and they just said, it's our island now. And they put the Tonga flag on it, and that's the end of the story. This guy's kingdom goes away as soon as the king of Tonga says, it's mine. So the bottom line here, Benny, is that you might be able to get your island, but you can't create your own country. Um, so, like, how cheap could I get, like, a small island for? <clears throat> you know, if you can afford a car, you can buy an island. <laughs> Is that, well, you know, I don't have a car. I have a bicycle. Oh, that's a problem. Well, no, no, no. It's just I don't really believe in cars. You know, I, all right, I, I'm sure there are plenty of really big, beautiful Caribbean islands that, you know, go for millions. But I'm sure there's also got to be, you know, some small, rocky little things that are harder to sell. I mean, you have to have something that's... Oh, man. You know, if you if you got to ask questions like that, it doesn't sound like your island material. I don't think you're in the market. I, I, I do have something I can suggest, though. What would that be? You, uh, you ever been to Saskatchewan? This episode of Too Much Information is called The Island. It was produced by myself, Benjamin Walker, with Bill Bowen and Laura Mayer. And it featured Kevin Wallen, Michael Garth, Christina Hsu, Wayne Marshall, and John Barth. There's even more Too Much Information at the TMI playlist page at wfmu.org. And you can also subscribe to the TMI podcast. 